Father, thank you, Lord, for Ruth and for the story of this woman and of her family. Thank you, Father, for, for calling and, and enabling this family to do remarkable things in a time in which men were doing what was right in their own eyes. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that you can work even in the darkest of times and in the, the least likely of circumstances. And I thank you, Father, that in all the books of the Bible we have been given this small and, and such a, a sweet, precious story so that we can understand that you are not just a God of the big things and of uh, mighty works and a God of, of ends and beginnings, but, Father, you're also a God who is uh, quiet and attentive to the needs of one woman who lived in a very dusty, distant place in a time long ago. You were there even then, Father, thinking of just her and turning her small life into something big for our sake in a story of things much grander than things of her day. We remember these things, Father. We're seeing, seeing these things in Scripture because each of us, Father, toil away in our own lives in ways that can be uh, obscure, can be frustrating, perhaps even unsatisfying. Father, even as a believer, we may find ourselves robbed of our joy from one way or another. And Lord, yet we can remember that you're not far. You have always been with us and will be. And that like a story like Ruth tells us, Father, even in the, in the days when we feel like we're, we're dry, there's nothing there. You're there. And you'll bring us to where we're to be. We thank you, Father, for that faithfulness. And we pray that you would offer us that same hope today in the scriptures as we read the story of, of Ruth in chapter 2. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back into chapter 2 now, chapter 2 of Ruth. That's where we pick up this morning. I hope you guys are following and tracking what we've been doing here without too much confusion. The story and then the story within the story and the way we're weaving the two together. And if you haven't noticed, I'm taking an every other week approach to this. So on the odd weeks, that is the one, three, five, and so on, the odd weeks we're doing the first story, that is Ruth, in the traditional sense of what you see on the page. And then in the even weeks, we're doing the second story of eschatology that's hidden in this book, the story of Israel and the church and of the end times. And if you haven't been counting, you're on an odd week this week. So we're starting chapter 2 with the first story of Ruth. So after nearly 10 years spent outside the land, Naomi is now back in Bethlehem or in the area of Judah. She's come back a widow. She's bitter. She's fragile. She's desperate. Her family plot of land that she had had prior to leaving, that land has now been abandoned for the better part of 10 years, so it's probably overrun with weeds, it's not producing any income, it's not producing any food, so really she has nothing, even among the things that would legally be hers, they're very little value to her right now. And in contrast to all that bitterness, the land around her is enjoying a renewed kind of strength. The famine has ended, people are harvesting, we're told, we've come into this at the end of chapter 1, we learned that... It was the beginning of the barley harvest time. Now, the barley harvest in Israel happens in around the April time frame. So this is a springtime harvest. And so after a period of drought and famine, once again, life seems to be good for those who are living in the land. All for except Naomi and Ruth, who find their well, found their way back and now find themselves as survivors without a provider in a land of plenty. So despite being poor widows together, these two women are actually on somewhat different paths. You can almost say that they're opposites right now because Naomi, on the one hand, is mourning the loss of her husband, her family, her sons. She has no prospect of a recovery. She has no real prospect of a husband again. She's in mourning and in desperation. On the other hand, though, you have Ruth 
She's excited. She's excited to know the true living God, the God of Israel, the Jewish God that she never would have known otherwise, and to become part of the Jewish people and to have access to God through them. She has had nothing by comparison in her prior life in Moab, and now she has access to even greater things, everything if you think in terms of eternity. So as you enter into chapter 2, I want you to look at how these two women are responding to their life in the land, one of bitterness, one of hopefulness, despite having the same earthly set of circumstances. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. So chapter 2 introduces or opens here by introducing us to the next major character in the story, Boaz. And as the text says twice in that short passage, he's a kinsman or a relative of the family of Naomi. That's the key feature of this man. He is a kinsman, not just a, a man of great wealth, not just a landowner, but he is a man who has a special relationship to the two women in this story. So apparently what Naomi has done in traveling back into Judah, she's come back to the general area of her family's inheritance, probably intentionally, knowing this is among friends and family. After all, she's destitute. She has no prospect of finding a husband. So her only hope here is that perhaps somebody in her distant family would find pity on her and do something to help her out of charity. Boaz means, there's some debate about it, but it can mean swift strength or it can mean quickness as in readiness to serve. He's called a kinsman, but that's a technical term. It doesn't just mean he's a family member or a relative. The term kinsman describes someone who is eligible, according to Jewish law, to perpetuate Elimelech's family line. And we'll speak more about that in coming weeks. For now, just know that he has a special relationship to these women. And as I said already, he's wealthy, which is also useful because it means he's the ideal candidate within the family to assist two women who need help. So these two women enter into the land of Elimelech's family, and as they do, they're naturally focused on their basic needs. Try to put yourselves in their heads for a moment as you think about what was ahead of these two women. Like Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs, these women had to attend to food and to protection before all else entered into their mind. And the need for food is obvious, right? You've got to eat. They have no source of income. They have no way to produce their own food. So they've got to find some way to eat. But secondly, they've got to find a source of protection. And for, I think, the women in this room, I assume this is something that you already would have imagined, but maybe not for the men as much. Sometimes men, I think we forget just how vulnerable women are in certain circumstances. And just as is the case today, two women living on the streets, literally, or in fields in this case, were very vulnerable. Can you imagine how terrified they must have felt in the middle of the night anytime they heard someone moving, men coming their way, walking through the fields or whatever? Who knew what lay around the corner for these two women? That would have been an ever-present concern. So, in those circumstances, Ruth, being the younger, takes the initiative. And in keeping with the promises she made to Naomi back in Moab, she is going to go find a way to provide for both of them. That was her commitment to Naomi, to be there with her, to take care of her. And under these circumstances, they really only have one choice, and that would be to beg for assistance. And so Ruth asks Naomi's permission to go glean, 
that is to collect the fallen stalks of grain that are found in fields at harvest time. The Lord in His mercy made a provision in the law given to Israel for widows and for strangers, the term is, for people who had need like these two women. The Lord said to Israel that when they went out to harvest in their fields during the spring or the winter harvest, they were to go out in a particular way to ensure that the needy had some form of provision. Those who didn't have their own land, those who didn't have any opportunity to farm. And, more importantly, it was a means of providing for these people in an honorable way. In a way that preserved their dignity. It goes like this. A couple places you can find it, but just, for example, one, in Leviticus chapter 19, we hear this, 19.9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Harvesting is a multi-step process in the way it was done, particularly then when it was done manually. First, men would go out in the field with these long, real long stick, like you ever seen the guy that's the grim reaper? He's carrying one of these. Why? Because the image of harvesting has been used since the oldest time of writing as a metaphor for when God collects the souls of people off the earth. So the grim reaper is reaping the souls of men, as it were. But anyway, reaping starts with this scythe, and it's just a long stick with a curved, sharp blade at the end. And as you can probably already imagine, you just swing these things in an arc as you move through the grain, cutting down the stalks of grain, and they lay flat as they get cut down. Behind the ones who are reaping, you have the gleaners, those who would come along and collect all of the stock that's now laying down ready to be picked up. They bundle them. They carry these bundles to a threshing floor, a hard surface where the fruit is separated from the chaff by the treading of usually oxen or something heavy. Finally, the grain now separated has to be winnowed from all of the chaff lying around it. So they pick it up in in baskets and they throw it up in the air. They do this in the evening when the evening winds pick up in the desert. And that wind just pulls the chaff away and the seed falls right back down and they collect the seed. That's harvesting. Multi-step process. It's a time of celebration. It goes on over a period of a week or two. People end every night with a feast. It's a big time of celebration as you harvest and you work the field. So that's the, the general approach. In Leviticus... God directed that those in Israel who would be collecting the grain should do it in an intentionally sloppy way. Sloppy from our point of view, that is. That as the men cut down the stalks, think of it just geometrically, they're swinging this side in a circular fashion because that's the natural motion. You know, you you don't go like this. You just move in an easy back and forth way, which creates an arc with each pass. And so as you reach the corner of land, their swing is typically going to leave behind a triangular section of uncut stock. Now, if you're really intent on getting every last grain, you can get in there and you know, cut the, the last stuff down. But the law says don't do that. The law says take your ark and move on and leave the corners uncut. And it goes further than that. It says even when you do cut, as those come behind you and gather, they're not going to gather every last little stock. They're going to miss a few. You're just gathering quickly. And he says leave behind the ones that you don't pick up. In other words, don't be too careful about getting every last stock. Leave some stuff behind for the needy or for the stranger. The stranger referred to anyone who was just sojourning in the land of Israel, someone who was not of Israel, who did not have ownership in the land, therefore they didn't have their own land to farm. They were just passing through, but they needed food. Someone like Ruth, for example, would be a stranger. And then the needy referred to anyone who was of Israel, but they had need due to unfortunate circumstances, circumstances like widowhood. Someone like Naomi. So it's interesting that the Lord commanded the people 
to leave the grain, not just those that had fallen and weren't picked up, but he specifically says leave some that is also standing in the corners, in other words. Why? You know, he didn't say harvest everything, take every last thing, and then make sure you give 10% to the needy. He didn't say that. The point was to make sure that the needy and the stranger don't suffer humiliation in the process of receiving a handout. That instead he commanded that the needy be given opportunity to go out into the field and harvest for themselves. To do some measure of work in payment, if you will, for what they were receiving. They were permitted to harvest for themselves. They had the dignity of work. Even though they were harvesting in someone else's field, even though it's not what they planted, in a sense, you could say they were hired workers for that day and they were receiving the fruit of their own labor. Their pay was the food they got to eat that day. This is exactly what Ruth is hoping to do. And that's why she says to Naomi, may I go out and use this opportunity to collect food for both of us. She must know the custom. In fact, I would imagine that Naomi probably explained this to her as they talked on the way back from Moab. What are we going to do when we get there? What's our provision? What's our plan? Well, there's a little law in Israel that lets us have something. This is what it's going to require. Are you ready to work in the field? Now, this is no small step of faith because, remember, this is the time of judges. We've said this on many occasions. This is when people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was possible, and I might maintain it was likely, that the Jews in this day would have ignored Leviticus 19 every bit as much as they were ignoring all manner of other law, which we've studied in the book of Judges, right? And so there's a serious step of faith here on Naomi and Ruth's part to go back into a land assuming that their brethren are going to observe this law for their own sake. Because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes means many people were probably taking every last stalk of grain. Back in verse 2, Ruth asked Naomi, can I begin? Naomi gives her agreement. I think she probably asked permission because she knew she was taking a risk even in this maneuver. Because she's taking a risk in going out in the fields by herself. Naomi's taking a risk by letting her go and then by the same measure remaining alone in the field by herself. These two women are splitting up. If they were ever vulnerable together, they're twice as vulnerable apart. But they have to separate if they're going to survive. So she sets out and follows the reapers. Now as a Moabitess, Ruth obviously knows no one else in Israel except Naomi. So from the point of view of of Ruth, as she sets out on this mission, she doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't know anyone. She has no reason to pick one field over another. From her point of view, it's just random, right? She's just looking for an opportunity, and if one runs out in one field, she'll pick up and move and go to the next field. It's hard work. You're out all day. You're exposed to the sun. She doesn't have water. She doesn't have anybody caring for her. This is seriously difficult work. But by the providence of the Lord, Ruth finds her way, as chance would have it, to the field of Boaz. Now, from Ruth's point of view, as I said, this is just another field. The writer says in verse 3 that she happened happened into Boaz's field. Now, the writer is not saying that this is an accident or that it wasn't according to God's purpose. The writer's not writing from God's point of view. He's writing from Ruth's point of view. Ruth herself did not know what she was doing, which makes God's providence all the more prescient. Because it's saying, even when she didn't know what she was doing, God was in control, moving her to where he knew she needed to be. As she sets about working, then the master of this field happens to come home. Verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers. Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, 
Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. All right, our first introduction to Boaz. And we learn a lot about this man, even in just those few verses. First, we know that he comes from Bethlehem. And as he enters his estate, he immediately takes notice of this young woman gleaning in the field. Now, harvesting was a fairly sizable operation. You would have a lot of people in the field. And not everyone would have been someone that Boaz would have known necessarily. This isn't necessarily the only stranger in his field. There would have been other poor collecting, probably, if not beyond all his servants, of course. But this woman catches his eye. And it's the combination of him taking notice of her and even the very timing of his arrival that further testifies to the Lord's hand in all of these circumstances. I mean, think about it. On the very day that Ruth happens into Boaz's field, Boaz happens to arrive back from Bethlehem at that very moment and then notices her among all the people that were already in the field. Look, you can believe in chance and circumstance or you can believe that the Lord's in control. One requires more faith. That's the first one. Because this is so clearly evidently something God is at work doing. Every detail of the story is pointing us to the Lord's hand. And as Boaz returns home, he greets his servants, as it says here, by the saying of, May the Lord be with you, to which they reply something very similar. What do you make of that, if anything? You may not even take notice of it. Don't overlook it, though. Remember, this story is set in the time of Judges, once again. In this day and age, people of Israel were not, generally speaking, thinking of the Lord. We saw that clearly when we studied the book of Judges, right? So, to have a man, during this time, greeting even his servants in this way, tells us something about his character. Boaz is a godly man. And I can say that on the basis not only of the overall story, but you'll see it for yourself soon enough, but even just in this little passage. This is a man whose mind is directed toward the Lord and toward the Lord's will. These are not throwaway lines. Even if that may be the case for us today, the Lord be with you, whatever, even if we are using them without much thought, don't assume that that was a common way for people to use such language in their day. To speak of the Lord, to speak of Yahweh, without thought was sacrilegious. To do it without concern for what you were saying would have been very unholy. They were very concerned with the use of God's name and of, of any greeting like this. It carried weight. It meant something. It's a detail that is strikingly in contrast with everything else we studied about the time of Judges. The hypocrite will display piety only before men of privilege or wealth or power. They'll, they'll speak in one way to one audience and then they'll up their game when they need to in front of an audience that they want to ingratiate themselves to. Because in doing so, they want to make an impression and they want to take some advantage out of that situation, right? But the rest of the time, the hypocrite will just revert back to their true nature, lording over the poor, taking advantage of the weak, speaking in unholy ways, being ungracious, and so on. But as soon as they meet the right person, they'll, they'll change, right? They're the chameleon. But a truly godly man or woman will practice their godliness even before the lowest of their culture. As James tells us in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James says that true religion, and to be technical, religion here means worship of God. True worship of God is seen in serving the underprivileged. And do you understand why? If your heart is directed at people like widows and orphans, these are people who have nothing to give you in return. 
If you serve them, you have zero prospect of anything good coming back in human terms, right? They can't give you money. They can't give you power and prestige by association. They can't grant you some kind of access to things you want. They are powerless by definition in the culture. But if you make them your point in ministry, what purpose could you have in serving them except love for God? That's what true religion... He's not saying that's the only way you can express true religion. He's using them as the poster children, so to speak, of what true faith and worship looks like. Serving someone for no reason except love of God. Why take time to invest in their lives? Because you love God. So when Boaz turns his attention to Ruth, this poor Moabite widow, a stranger, gleaning in his field, you see him practicing true, undefiled Religion, as James describes it. And that detail, together with his greeting, in which he's willing to speak words of blessing even to his servants, those two details together tell you a lot about this man's character. This is just the sort of man Ruth and Naomi need. Boaz's servant goes on to explain that Ruth was the Moabitess that was related to Naomi and came back with her and so on. And then he goes on to explain, you know, this woman's been here all day. She's been working here from the beginning of the day of work even until now, which means she arrived early, she worked hard throughout the hottest part of the day, and only now has she taken refuge for a time in the house. And the servant's report of Ruth tells us something about Ruth's character also. She's a woman of high character. You know, she's destitute. She's seeking the generosity of strangers. But nevertheless, that doesn't stop her from seeking some way to bless those that she's wanting help from. She works hard for their support. She doesn't expect assistance to just fall on her lap like she's entitled to it because she's poor. Remember, she had the law on her side. You could argue that she had no reason to work any harder than necessary. She should just be able to show up in the land and, you know, pick a few things up and go home. I mean, to what benefit is it to her to work any harder than needed? Well, nothing except that she recognized that her duty in response to what she was getting was to bless those who would be giving her what they gave her. Boaz, in other words. To bless them by working hard. Her character is a perfect complement to Boaz's character. And by complement, I mean Boaz, on the one hand, is an example of someone who displays godliness in times of plenty, in situations of strength. Where Ruth is a woman who in need yet sought for assistance with an attitude of industriousness and faithful service. So he was blessed with much, yet he approached the needs of others with compassion. She was godly in her evident desire to bless others in return for charity. You can see it both sides. You know, there's no reason for someone in wealth to be any less godly than someone in poverty or vice versa. The attitude should be exactly the same. From what I have, I seek to bless those who have little. From what I need, I seek to bless those who can supply to me. Paul says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order that if anyone is not willing to work, then he should not eat either. Pretty hard words, isn't it? He goes on to say, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, just acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. You see how he puts those two together, even in that admonition? He had one group primarily in view, yes, but he doesn't let that lack of industriousness on the part of the needy give cause for the rest to look down on them or to fail in doing good for them. We can't use one person's sin as an excuse for our own. He goes on to say, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 
I love the combination in Scripture. Hold people accountable, but don't malign them. Don't turn your back on them. Let's just work to get something good out of that situation. So anyway, back in the story, Ruth's disciplined, hard-working attitude is evidence of her godly character. And this is an attractive quality for a man like Boaz. And, you know, don't overlook the fact that who you are before you get married will have a lot to say about who you marry. Boaz's interests in Ruth have to go far beyond her physical attractiveness. If he's intrigued by her at all, it's probably by her work ethic, by her character. A man of high character will seek a woman of high character, and I think vice versa most of the time. And if your character is wanting, yet you have high regard for someone else, you might want to up your game to get ready for them, even before you know who they are, for the younger ones here who might be in an eligible age. There's an issue of matching yourself in all respects to your prospective mate. You may remember Boaz's mother from Scripture, Rahab. You know that name? She was the Gentile woman who helped the spies as they entered the land under Joshua in the city of Jericho. And she was also, like Ruth, a Gentile woman who ultimately sought refuge under the God of Israel in Israel. Her life was spared as a result of that, and she was welcomed into the family of Israel. And she had a son. He is Boaz. So it's interesting that he would have come across a woman named Ruth, and then he should be equally gracious in light of how his own family came to enter into the land. I mean, if you think about it, Boaz is a Jewish man of wealth and power because a Gentile woman was brought in by grace to the nation of Israel. And so he looks upon another Gentile woman, one with admirable qualities, and he must have been thinking a little of his own family and wondering maybe if this was his opportunity to do something similar. So he gives his servants particular instructions. Look at verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. It's a tender moment, isn't it? Great moment. Boaz approaches Ruth after he's spoken to the servant. Apparently they're still in the house. This is where she's seated in the house. He approaches her and he says, my daughter. That term is a tender way to address a young widow like Ruth. Now, she's vulnerable. She's probably concerned that someone's going to take advantage of her. I wouldn't doubt that she's in the house maybe for protection as much as rest. And here you have the master of the house. This is the guy with all the power who shows up and calls her daughter. Now, in this context, it does not mean literally that he's adopting her. What it means is he's referring to her like a woman who is employed, like a maidservant would be called. A daughter in the larger sense of someone under his care and protection. So he's placing Ruth under the protection of the house of Boaz. He's telling her, remain in the house, follow my gleaners, work in my fields, don't look elsewhere for your provision. He's saying, I will ensure that you find all your needs met in my house. It's a promise of provision. Secondly, he tells her, no one's going to touch you. 
That is, no one's going to harm you. This is the first anti-sexual harassment policy, and it's found in the Bible. For all of the world thinks it's so smart about these things. The Lord was doing this long before in the hearts of godly people. Boaz probably was not expecting, I assume, that his servants were going to attack Ruth in the field, because I don't think that Boaz would have employed such men routinely. But on the other hand, you never quite know what someone's going to do, and he couldn't be sure of everyone who was in this field anyway. So at the very least, in case anyone was inclined, Boaz has put everyone on notice. Don't even think about it, because I'm watching. The main point of his comment is to reassure Ruth. It's a promise of protection. And then finally, Boaz says to Ruth, you can draw water with the servants. In fact, he says, you can go get the water out of the jars that they've already drawn and filled. You know, access to water in a dry, dusty land of Judah, that's a particular importance, a particular need. Someone like Ruth would likely have been forced to find her water in open pools on the ground, perhaps maybe a stream if one were available. Such water is likely to be dirty. Waterborne illnesses was an ever-present concern for the poor, for someone in her situation. Finding clean water was a challenge. And if she could find a well, then you have the, the back-breaking labor of taking a bucket, lowering it, and pulling up the heavy weight of water just to get a simple drink. This is not a trivial thing for her to be able to have water right out of the jars. Clean water, routinely available, filled by someone else for her benefit. Not only is she going to have ready access to it, but she didn't even have to do the work to get it. More importantly, she has living water, which is the Jewish term for fresh water. It's a promise of privilege in the home. So Boaz has stepped into the desperate life of a Gentile widow and has given her promises of provision, protection, and privilege. And the receiving of these things stuns Ruth, as you can tell. She bows in respect and she asks the question that many of us have probably asked in our own context, how could she have found favor? She says, how did I find favor in Boaz's sight? The word for favor in Hebrew is chen, which you may know is also translated grace. It's the question we always ask that literally has no answer. You cannot answer the question, how come I have found grace? You're asking the reason for something that by definition has no reason. Unmerited favor, undeserved favor, which means you cannot trace it to something you've done, which means you cannot say, how did I get it? Except to simply ask it in a rhetorical fashion, so as to emphasize that I could never have had this, but for the fact that you were willing to give it to me. And for no reason of my own have I received it, but strictly because of your mercy and your grace, your, your favor. Ruth asks, why do you show me this kind of undeserved kindness? And Boaz has an answer. Don't misunderstand me. There is an answer here, but it's not the cause. He answers her by saying, I, I've heard these things about you. I know that your testimony precedes you here. What you've done for Naomi, what you've done for her family. What you sacrificed in order to take care of a relative. And that's another piece of this, by the way. Naomi is a relative of Boaz. So this act of sacrifice alone would have been worthy of some recompense, wouldn't you think? I mean, you've gone out of your way to take care of one of my family members. I should do something for you. But Boaz is not making his cause for his kindness that fact. That's the reason he took note of her. What was the cause? He's even more impressed, he says, by Ruth's commitment to join to a people that she did not know and a God who was not her God. He points to Ruth's choice to seek refuge under the wings of the God of Israel and says, that is the cause for your reward. May the Lord reward you in full, which is a way of implying, I'm doing my part, but the God that you've come to will do even more. In other words, Boaz is acting on behalf of the Lord to bring rewards to a child of God made so by faith. 
Finally, Ruth comes to understand that Boaz is serious. This is truly happening, and she acknowledges that. She says, I receive your favor, and I'm amazed to have it, and that she's comforted by what he's doing. And then she embraces the new position. She refers to herself as a maidservant. You might say she owns it. But then she says, nevertheless, I know I'm not like your other maidservants. What she's saying is, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm an outsider who's been brought into the home. I'm not a natural member of this home. In humility, she recognizes what the master here is doing is beyond even what would be expected. Her humility is magnifying his mercy and kindness. The fact that she was not of the home but being treated like she's in the home makes Boaz look all the better for what he's done, which is exactly the point. She's honoring him with that statement. The Lord has united a Jewish godly master with a Gentile godly Moabite in the midst of an otherwise ungodly culture and he's done it by means of his grace. It doesn't take much effort to see yourself in this story, does it? I mean, just in the symbolism of what we're watching happen here, right? As we dive deeper into the story in coming weeks, you're going to come to understand even better that Boaz is a picture of Christ in this story, if you didn't already know that. But even now, you can recognize that Boaz's favor, his grace, bestowed upon Ruth, a Gentile, is a beautiful representation of Christ's grace given to each of us, Gentiles, in the body of Christ. We were strangers to God. We were, in a sense, working in the fields of the world, our heads down, just getting by, not paying attention to anything except what we needed to get out of the field that day. We weren't looking for the Lord. We weren't looking for God. We didn't know who He was. And then one day, the Lord took notice of us. That's an important detail in this story. Who found who? Who came to who? Who discovered who? Who took note of who? It's Boaz taking note of Ruth. It's Boaz going to Ruth. It's Boaz offering grace to Ruth and bringing her into the family. Ruth never made a motion in that direction whatsoever. She's sitting there, doing nothing, as it were. And how did the two come to meet? What was the instrument that brought the two together? Well, in the story, it's the servant. You notice, even though Boaz noticed Ruth from a distance, he goes to his servant first, and he asks, tell me a little about this lady. And it's really the servant who introduces them, if you think about it. And any time in Scripture that you see a servant unnamed, and you notice there's no name given to this servant, Anytime you see that, or many times when you see that, it means the servant is the picture of the Holy Spirit. The unnamed actor, behind the scenes, working to make things happen. That's why he's left unnamed, to create that mystery so that we see it as a picture of spirit. And in this case, that servant, the Spirit of God, brought us to a knowledge of Christ. Introduced us, if you will. Where before we were strangers, Christ now joins us to the house of God, making us his adopted children or servants. And in the course of that new relationship being formed by means of the Spirit, several things come our way immediately without us lifting a finger. First, we receive promises of provision now and in the kingdom. And secondly, he promises us protection first and foremost from the penalty of sin and from the power of death. And ultimately from all things that could harm us, right? Paul says that neither life nor death nor this or nor that nor that can separate us from the love of God. There's a protection there that transcends anything of the creation. And then finally he grants us privilege. Jesus says, I've called you my servants, now I call you my friends. He says, you're adopted sons and daughters of the living God. You've been made one in Christ. There's this privilege of identity that comes now because of our faith in Christ. And through it all he gives us living water the spirit that lives in us.
He does all these things before we've even opened our mouth to acknowledge Him. Did you notice that? Before Ruth even says one word to Boaz, He's put all these things in place. He bestowed upon her the things of His grace. He lifted her up. He granted her favor. And the best thing she could do in response was to bow down and worship Him and to acknowledge there was grace at work. Now, as we come to the end of this section and we look forward into coming weeks of study, there's still a question now. The question is, well, this is all fine and dandy. Ruth seems to have her life in in good order. But what about Naomi? What about the poor woman back in the field right now? How is she supposed to enjoy some of these same benefits now that Ruth seems to have found the person who cared for her? Well, that's still to be decided. And then also, what about our second story? What do these events say about that underlying story of the end times, about Israel and the church and so on. Well, we want to study that as well. That'll be our second story as we come back to this next time. Let's go to prayer and then a finishing up with a time of corporate prayer to finish up our service. Dear Father, I thank you, Father, that you uh, remind us of, of grace and of your favor. Thank you for a for a man like Boaz who would give Ruth what she needed when she didn't know him so that we can see just how much we did receive from Christ before we had even noticed that he was a part of our life. We're still catching up to that story, Father, each in our own way. We're still trying to understand what it is you've given us and live in the light of it. But one thing is true, Father, whether we understand it or whether we live in it, it's been granted to us. By faith, we have come to know you. And nothing in this world is going to separate us from the love that you've shown us in Christ. For if it could be separated, if we could be separated, Father, I dare say none of us could survive. I dare say, very much am mindful, Father, of my own sin at times, as we all are, I know, and, and yet that sin, Father, has been dealt with on the cross so that what we know now is only you. What you see in us is only your own righteousness. And so, Father, thank you for that reminder of grace. Keep us in this story, Father. Keep our hearts attentive to it. Let us come back week to week and let us see the, the rest of it play out. Teach us as only you can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.